The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age that angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained from the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The word of the Lord. If someone will just bring me a guitar now, I will sing to you the sermon this morning. Right, so it feels a little awkward. I, I've never sat to preach. So um, apologies if it's a little awkward to you. We'll just work it moving through it and see how things go. So last week, Zach did a great job of opening our series on the parables. We're spending time in the parables from now until Advent, covering most of the parables, not quite all and trying to understand what Jesus has to teach us in the midst of those parables. Parables are a fascinating and unique aspect to the Gospels. Jesus did not come giving a law code. He did not come giving a code of conduct. He comes telling stories, stories that are are mysterious sometimes, stories that are incredibly difficult to understand, many times stories that can be interpreted in more than one way. And this is the way that Jesus comes presenting the kingdom. And what Zach taught us last week is that that's intentional because as people wrestle with the parables themselves, their understanding or grasp of the kingdom is revealed. In other words, to understand a parable in in a way that it affects your life, not just to be able to explain it, but actually to be good soil and to produce a crop means that you've come to grasp the kingdom to some extent. And the kingdom is actually having an impact on your life. And that, of course, is what we're after in the course of the sermon series. As Jesus spends a few words, or Matthew, as he's recording Jesus' teaching, in chapter 13, we'll have this introduction to the parables. But Jesus then almost immediately turns to talk about the kingdom, which apart from himself, the kingdom is the thing that Jesus speaks the most about. He speaks to uh, the most, it's most significant, it, As he comes, the kingdom comes. This is what John the Baptist has has prophesied is coming. And this is the way that Jesus unfolds his ministry, which which makes us need to wrestle with, do we understand the kingdom? What is the kingdom? What's its nature? What is Jesus trying to communicate as he emphasizes the kingdom in the way that he does? These questions are at the forefront as we jump in uh, this morning. And essentially... The, the major theme that I hope you walk away with this morning 
is, that, is realizing that the kingdom comes unexpectedly. But that's a good thing because your kingdom expectations are not good expectations. And as a result of that, the kingdom is worth everything you have. The kingdom comes unexpectedly, which is a good thing because your expectations are unfounded. And as a result of that, it's worth everything that you have. That's what we're after this morning. So to understand kingdom and expectations and how our expectations may be wrong and how this passage is addressing expectations, we have to understand a little bit about the expectations of the kingdom as Jesus is arriving on the scene. What did the people of God in the Old Testament expect of the kingdom? If you sat down with one of them and said, hey, what are you hoping for in the arrival of the kingdom? What would that person say? Well, one thing they're going to say is, well, God's going to have to do something dramatic. He's going to have to send another Moses, another David, because we expect to be ushered into a period where, where like a Moses will lead us to a new place, and like a David will reign over us, and like the golden era of Israel before it will be reestablished. Now, we could talk a long time about this, but I want you to have in your mind this morning three basic components to kingdom expectation at the time of Jesus. Number one, everyone expected pretty crazy blessing. We could turn to any number of passages in the Old Testament. Passages that speak of the hills dripping with wine. Uh, The passage of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel, where God brings all of the bones to life. That new life is going to be given to Israel. Uh, Or um, this notion that Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world. And all the treasures of the world are going to be brought into Jerusalem. Right? If we were to consider any of those, they give us a picture of radical blessing, and they really suggest radical material blessing to Israel, to Jerusalem, to those who have been faithful. So number one is blessing. Number two is judgment. When God shows up in this decisive way, when the kingdom arrives, Israel's enemies and those who have been unfaithful in Israel are going to be judged dramatically. God, in essence, will clean house. Out with the bad, and the good, the faithful, are rewarded. So number one is blessing, number two is judgment, number three is law. How do you know when God has shown up and is in control and has fixed everything? You know it because everyone is obeying Torah. Everyone is being faithful to the Mosaic law. It's written on their hearts, obedience is evident, And this is what society will look like. All of the world will be governed by the king who righteously enforces Mosaic law. So are you with me? This is pretty important to understand the parables that we're wrestling with this morning. If you're with me so far, if I asked you, what's basic kingdom expectation when Jesus comes on the scene? Say, number one, they expected big blessing. Number two... They expected judgment of their enemies. Number three, they expected that Torah would rule the society. Okay? Those are the expectations. All well and good. There is only one problem with those expectations, and his name is Jesus. So let's consider how he shows up in the midst of those expectations. Our first parable is the parable of hidden treasure. A, uh, a worker, a laborer, probably a peasant, uh, finds a treasure in a field. And upon finding the treasure, he he esteems its worth to be so great that he quickly buries it again so it won't be found. 
Hiding a treasure in a field was a very common security practice in the ancient world, right? If foreign army X is coming to invade, you can't run and deposit everything in the federally insured bank. You bury it, right, in a place only you know of. He discovers this treasure. He runs. He sells everything he has to acquire the legal rights to the field so that he can have the treasure. The next parable is the parable of the pearl of great price. A merchant who trades in pearls, he's a connoisseur of fine pearls, finds a pearl that is so unspeakably beautiful, it captures his imagination in a way that he goes and he sells everything so he can possess the pearl. It's not about money, right? He's got enough money to buy the pearl, but he's willing to give all of that money to acquire the pearl. As someone who loves and appreciates the beauty of the pearl, he recognizes what he sees in this unique pearl, and sacrifices everything to possess it. So what, are the point, what is the point of these two parables? And boys and girls, I think you can get the idea of this. right? Can you imagine that if you came upon a doll that was so wonderful and so beautiful that you immediately went and sold everything you had to buy it? Or if you found a Lego set that was so cool so beyond any Lego set that you had ever seen that you, you gave up all of your other toys, every single one, to possess that one Lego set. Right? This is what we're talking about in the parables. Jesus says that when you actually discover the kingdom, which notice in these parables is not overt. The kingdom does not drop on you like a mountain does. Right? The kingdom is subtle. It's hidden. Jesus has said just previously that it's like yeast working its way through bread or seed that's been sown and will grow over a long period of time in a field. But when you do discover the kingdom, the kingdom is so significant, it is so spectacular, that you will, will do anything to possess it. Anything that stands in the way of you in the kingdom, you will remove by any means necessary so that you can embrace and hold on to the kingdom. Does that describe your relationship with Jesus and his kingdom? Are you one who, when looking from the outside, seems a little bit crazy to the degree of what you're willing to sacrifice and give up to embrace more of Jesus and his kingdom? Mr. and uh, Mrs. Frugalwoods, a, uh, not a real name. They didn't want to share their real name in an article uh, that appeared in Forbes recently. You'll understand their name and why they wish to remain anonymous as the story goes on. Uh, were uh, students at the University of Kansas. And in 2006, they graduated and were married shortly thereafter. They moved to uh, Boston and began uh, jobs that weren't crazy lucrative, but were decent jobs for having been to college and, and getting a job in that area. They eventually bought a four-bedroom house in Cambridge, uh, which is a pretty nice place to own a house. And then a uh, little while afterwards, you know, after all this has transpired, it dawned on them that they had acquired everything that they had set out to acquire, right? They had the good jobs. They lived where they wanted to live. They, um, they had the house, and they were very unhappy. They didn't have enough time to do actually what they wanted to do. And so they began to daydream. You know, what would it look like if we retired early? What, if it look, what would it look like if we retired very early? The Frugalwoods are both planners. 
They're pretty thoughtful. And so they started to sit down and work numbers and come up with a plan, a plan that would enable them to retire at 33. Their car is 19 years old. They don't eat out. They fix almost everything on their own at home. They don't subscribe to anything, nor go to see movies. If they want to watch a movie, they check one out at the library and bring it home. They don't have any, any media. Mrs. Frugal Woods, who loves yoga, worked out a deal with her local yoga studio that if she worked the desk a few hours each week, she would get free lessons. Mr. Frugal Woods rides his bike every day to work year-round in Boston. These people, if they're not impressed, they're a little bit crazy, perhaps. But you'll see the point of the story in a moment. So can this actually be done? Can somebody pull this off? Right? They, and kids are on the way. If you, if you, might, you might dismiss them as childless. Um, they graduated in 2006, and they are on track to, to retire in 2017, which will be 11 years after the date of their graduation at which point they're going to buy 20 acres in South Vermont, build a house, and build two Airbnb rentals on, those, on that acreage. Now, they don't need to make another dollar after 2017. That's how they've set it up. But Mr. Frugal Woods likes welding, Mrs. Frugal Woods a writer, and they have the rental income from the Airbnb. And so they're going to live out the rest of the days doing whatever they want to do on their little farm in southern Vermont and enjoying their life. Now, that's pretty amazing. They were gripped by a vision by an idea of what they wanted their lives to be, of something that gave them hope. And sadly, it's not something that's eternal. But they then surrendered pretty much everything to acquire that vision. I'm not sure what I would do if I met someone who came up to me and said, yeah, you know, I've given up all media and eating out and motorized transportation uh, so that I can give away as much as I can to the church and to missions. I've yet to meet that person. Why do I hear that story from people just pursuing something that's so temporal? And we don't hear that story more often amongst people who are pursuing something eternal, something that's so much bigger and so much grander. Why do we not actually surrender things in that fashion for the kingdom? And I'll tell you two sad things. You know, we could focus on time, which you have to spend, and energy, which you have to spend, but the parables are focusing on money. Money reveals where our heart is. And so where does your money go and what does it reveal? I'll tell you two sad things generally about the church today. Number one, the average evangelical Christian who attends church at least two Sundays a month gives 2.3% of their income to the church. That's nothing. How is the church going to accomplish anything on that amount of giving? Another sad thing is uh, evangelical Christians, the more they make, the less they give, the more selfish they become. Now, of course, we can't exempt ourselves. We are guilty of this to some extent. This plays out at Trinity, level, Trinity Harbor at a certain level. Some of you are very generous and you give regularly. Others of you are not generous and you don't give regularly. You give when you feel like it or when you feel guilty. The church survives because of that pool of people who give regularly and faithfully. Where does your money go? And what does it reveal? Now, my point is, I don't know who gives generously and who doesn't give generously, and I don't want to know. Right? It's not information that's disclosed to me. 
My point is that your giving reveals your heart, and it reveals even more importantly what you believe about the kingdom. Right? If you aren't giving generously to the church, the agent of God's kingdom in this world, then you don't believe in the kingdom. Can we be straight about that? Right? With these two parables, he's saying how we spend our resources in response to what we've discovered in the kingdom reveals to us whether or not we've really grasped the kingdom. And so how does your spending reveal to you whether or not you've grasped the kingdom? Now, why wouldn't we grasp the kingdom? Right? Neither you nor I, we, everyone in this room is guilty of not being what we should be in terms of giving. We're greedy. We hang on to our money. Right? That's part of the culture that we've grown up in. It's part of our story, and we all need to work to do better. But... Let's step back for a moment and ask the question, why is that the case? Why do we not embrace the kingdom? If we would say logically, I believe that Jesus is giving me everything that I need in this world. He gives me abundant life, and he ensures everything that I need eternally, the grandest riches that I cannot possibly imagine, then why would I cling and hoard in this world? It doesn't make any logical sense, and that's because it's not a logical act. 